Okay. Hello, everyone. Firstly, I want to thank Rabbi Leibowitz for enlightening so many of us on such an important topic. My name is Yitzhi Stein, and I'm a board member of the Medical Ethics Society here at Yeshiva University. I am honored to have the opportunity to introduce our next speaker, Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tass. Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tass was born in Johannesburg, South Africa, where he studied medicine. He spent a year in St. Louis, Missouri as an American Field Service Scholar and returned there for elective work in internal medicine at Washington University. Rabbi Tatz subsequently moved to Israel where he practiced both in the hospital and in general medicine in Jerusalem as well as engaging in yeshiva study. After practicing medicine and studying yeshiva concurrently for some time, Rabbi Tatz began teaching in Jewish thought and medical ethics in Jerusalem. He's the author of a number of books on Jewish thought and medical halacha. Rabbi Tatz lectures at the Jewish Learning Exchange in London and internationally and has become a pillar in the field of medical ethics and medical halacha. Thank you so much for your time today, and I am privileged to now present Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz. First of all, thank you very much to Jonah and Lieber for inviting me to participate in this conference. And I'll do my best to share with you some of the fascination of a brave new world of Jewish genetics, genomics, and sh share with you some cutting-edge issues, including genetic uh, techniques that are actually breaking as we speak. At the very least, you'll learn how to speak English correctly. <laughs> Can you hear me at the back? Yes? Okay, come sit up front. Come sit right here. The seats right here. Come sit here if, you, if you're not hearing well. So in the time we have, let me try to cover some of the fascinating new areas in genetics, some going back a few years, some happening right now, and let's see how far we get. The first question when it comes to genes and, and halacha is, can you use DNA to identify people? So that's tremendous application, forensics, in criminal work, and you can think of enormous, countless applications of knowing who a person is by means of their, of their DNA. The um, one obvious application is when you have a body, a dead body or part of a body, and you need to know who the person is for all sorts of requirements. One would be, can you move a body or move bones to bury people in a different place? We don't mess with bones for any reason almost. One of the rare reasons is to move a person to be buried with family. We call that Kivrei Aves. Sometimes to bury a person in Israel under unique circumstances. So we need to know who the person is. There are things like paternity, who's the parent, relationships between people. There are endless applications of this, um, of this issue. Let's talk briefly about the forensic application of knowing who a person is. So the, um, the gold standard up to now has always been, let's say you find a body part or a body, you need to know who the body is. How do you identify who the person is? So, the basic halachic standard is witnesses need to see the body, including the face, including the central part of the face and the nose. So, if witnesses, credible witnesses, see the body, they testify, that's the individual, then we know that he's died, his wife may remarry, for example, that's a classic application in the Talmud. That's how we identify people. The problem is, what if you cannot see the face? The body is disfigured or it's decomposed, you cannot identify the face of the person. 
then we can use what we call simanim. A siman means an identifying feature, and that can be valid halakhically. The classic siman that's been used in forensics has been dental records. Any dentists here? Dental students? So the excellent dentists present will tell you that they always keep detailed dental records of all their patients, and these can be very specific. And the teeth survive acid and fires and various other uh, forms of damage. And so if a body is found even badly decomposed, if the dental records match the dentist's documentation of what the person was, that could be possibly be, be a simon. You could also have other features. For example, let's say there's a very unique bodily feature, maybe a very unusual birthmark, maybe even some incredibly unusual tattoo even though Jews are not supposed to be tattooed. But the point is that a tattoo is, you cannot erase it. I never forget the example, the experience of being a young physician. And I had a young fellow came into my, my surgery. He jumped up at the examining table to be examined, took off his shirt. He had a tattoo on his arm. Sue, crossed out. Becky, crossed out. Carol, crossed, you know, it was like, I think Becky featured twice, you know. You'd think, you know, you'd think you'd get the message, but, you know, so... The point is, since it cannot be erased, right, that would be possibly an identifying feature. Now, the question is, how unique does the feature have to be to identify the person? So we have in Alakha a thing called a Simon Muvhak, which is a very, very unique feature, and a Simon Bainani, which is something more regular, or run-of-the-mill, and then something that is a very low-level Simon that you might find in, in any object. You know, if I, uh, if I find a lost object, and you claim it's yours... The lucky procedure is, I don't show you, I say, describe it. You say, well, it was blue, it had a scratch, it had a mark. If you give me sufficiently unique identifying features, then I return it to you. That's one classic application of simonim, and it's used in bodies as well. Now, the problem is, what is called sufficiently unique? The Gemara doesn't give statistics. And so, we have majority, minority, significant minority... But we don't have a statistical rule that we use in halakha. In fact, we're quite skeptical about statistics in very many medical applications. And the question is, what is absolutely unique? So for the last four or five hundred years, I would say, if you look in halakhic literature, our great authorities have said that one in a thousand would be sufficiently unique. So what we call simon ufak would be something that is less likely than one in a thousand. They would identify a person, his wife can remarry. We know that who this person is. What is the statistical significance of DNA identification? It's something like 1 in 10 million. That is way better than 1 in 1,000. But on the other hand, it is newfangled, you could make mistakes, there could be lab error. How do our great halakhic authorities relate to the modern technique of identifying people or parts of people by DNA analysis? By the way, you should realize that 1 in 10 million is not absolute. There have been United States courtroom dramas in which the jury was told that the accused, there's less than a 1 in 10 million chance that this could be the wrong person, still means 30 or 40 Americans could have done the crime. 400 million people, right? And therefore, it's not absolute. But it's a very, very way better than 1 in 1,000. I'll tell you the bottom line, is that modern authorities like Avasha Weiss, for example, have tended to rule that if you have DNA identification, plus what we call raglayim ladova. Raglayim ladova means what in English you'd call corroborating evidence. In other words, some background reason why we'd assume that this is valid. Then we would use that as identification. Perhaps the most classic and best-known case was when the buildings were attacked in 9-11. You know, almost no bodies were found. 
but there was part of a body that was thought to belong to a Jewish man from New York I think from Westchester if I'm not mistaken they took DNA from the body part and it perfectly matched DNA in, hair, in his hairbrush at home in his apartment and they figured that that would be the same individual fortunately, I mean unfortunately he was speaking to his wife on the phone from the building at the time it was attacked and then the phone went silent, he was never seen so he, she was allowed to remarry Raglaim Nadova, we know he was in the building because he was speaking on the phone at the time and secondly the DNA matched so that has been the standard that has been used over the last few years and it's had many applications um, not that long ago a young man wanted to marry a woman whom a Cohen may not marry he happens to be a Cohen and she, he may not marry her but there was a confused adoption story in the family it wasn't clear if he was in fact the son of the purported father who's a Cohen now, Asher Weiss allowed them to take DNA. The DNA proved conclusively he's not the son of his so-called father and allowed him to remarry. Why? DNA evidence, background corroborating evidence, there was already a complicated story in the family, so he was allowed to remarry. So that has pretty much been the, the attitude. This, this is moving territory. It could be that in, in, in the near future our great authorities will allow DNA evidence on its own. I've been asked questions recently about people from the former Soviet Union who claim to be Jewish, all records are destroyed. Can they use DNA to establish relationships? In fact, recently we have discovered a Jewish gene. Amazingly, a Jewish gene. I'll tell you something about that as well. And the question is, can you use that to diagnose a person as Jewish, Ashkenazi, an Ashkenazi gene? Now they're doing the work in Bukharian, Jews and others as well. So, those are some fascinating issues. Any Kohanim present? Kohanim? So here's an amazing story, just to show you how far this goes. Going back a few years, there was a doctor called Dr. Carl Skarecki, who's from Canada, some Torontonians here, right? Canadians. So Dr. Carl Skarecki is a Cohen, and he's a doctor and a geneticist. He was sitting in shul on Shabbat morning in Toronto, when he noticed a man being called up as a Cohen who's a Yemenite. Now Dr. Skarecki looks like he looks, the Yemenite looks like a Yemenite Jew. Now, they look very different, and they come from very different stock. Dr. Skarecki suddenly thought, I think he's now the dean of the medical school in Besheva, if I'm not mistaken, he's moved to Israel. At the time, he was living in Toronto. He suddenly thought to himself, if that man's a coin and I'm a coin, that means we've descended from the same man. What does it mean to be a coin? That you descended in a direct line from Aaron coin, right? 3,300 years ago. And being a geneticist, he realized that we can now prove that. We can prove it. How do we prove it? If we can find a part of the DNA that is patrilineal, that goes down only from father to son, as a Cohen must be, and we can show that there's an identity between father and son in an unbroken line through history, which we can now do, we can identify genetically any person being, uh, claiming to be a Cohen today. How do we do it? Without boring you with the technicalities, we use what's called a molecular clock. That means we know that if there's a common ancestor and that person, let's say, has two children, those two will be very closely relinked genetically. Not identical, because there'll be a click of the molecular clock of mutations creeping in every generation. We know that mutation rate is. And we'll know that these two are brothers. Their children who are cousins, we'll know that they're cousins, because there'll be another click of the clock in that generation. Is this clear? Okay, so we'll know that they are related, and we'll know how many generations have gone by with precision from a common ancestor. We may not know how many years have gone by, because that will depend on the age at which people were having their children. Is, is this clear? But we'll know exactly how many clicks of the clock, how many generations have gone by. So Dr. Skarecki decided, let's, let's check it out. 
Where would you find hundreds of Kohanim at one time and place? Where? At the Kotel. So he went down to the Kotel on Cholamoid, right? He set up a little scientific table. There were hundreds, a couple thousand Kohanim. He invited anybody claiming to be a coin. No documentation required, simply, my father told me I'm a coin. He took a little bit of scraping from inside of their cheeks and he found, amazingly, a unique Kohanic signature. That's called the CMH, the Cohen Model Haplotype. And he found that a very high percentage of Jewish men claiming to be Kohanim have this gene. The work was done by a team in Oxford, a non-Jewish team. He was an advisor to the team. And they found a very, very high carrier rate of a, uh, a gene that is shared by Kohanim. Which part of the genome would you need to look at for this? Which part of the chromosomes? The Y chromosome, right? You need that part which is uniquely passed from father to son. And that has to carry. You cannot use other parts of the genome because those are a mix and match of both parents. So you'd need, right, clear? You'd need a, a lineage that is passed from father to son only. So the CMH, the, the Cohen uh, uh, gene, has had some very interesting... They think that the person who was the common ancestor lived about 2,000 years ago. We would disagree. We'd say it's a little more than 3,000. But it's not that far off. And again, they're making assumptions about the ages of which, uh, at which people were having their children. Some of the amazing consequences of this, I'll tell you one amazing one. I happen to be South African. In South Africa, there's a tribe of black people called the Lemba people. These are black Negroid people. These people claim to be Jewish. Now, when I was a child in South Africa, we thought that, that was a joke. I mean, they're not Jewish. I mean, they're tribal black people. They claim to be descended from Yemenites who traded through Africa over hundreds of years, and they claim to be Jewish. Not only that, there's a clan among them called the Buba clan, and they claim to be Kohanim. We thought that was even funnier. Dr. Skareki tested them, and they have the Kohen gene. There's going to be some interesting surprises when the Mashiach arrives. Right? It's going to be who... So that has been one of the consequences. By the way, a very moving consequence, look this up yourself, it's published, openly published. A very moving consequence has been that when they did the study on Kohanim, now again, this is a non-Jewish academic team, they published the, the bottom, the, the, the last paragraph conclusion is, this proves conclusively that a high percentage of Jewish men claiming to be Kohanim are indeed descended from one common ancestor, but there's a short paragraph before that which is extremely moving. And here's what they write. They say an unexpected finding in this study was an unprecedented level of marital fidelity among the Jewish people. Do you know what this means? This means that for the last 3,000 years, you're talking about women loyal to their husbands with no illegitimate relationship outside of marriage for 3,000 years. Again, if one woman conceived a child from a man other than a husband, once in 3,000 years you've broken the chain. The discrepancy rate was 2%. With all the rapes and pillages and pogroms and what we've been through, okay, the discrepancy is still only 2%. They said they've never seen a population with that level of marital fidelity, at least Kohanim, don't ask me about the rest of it, you know, but at least, <laughs> at least Kohanim, right, an amazing sociological finding that these researchers pointed out in this, in this study. Look it up yourself, it's very interesting. Even more amazing, probably, is the finding a few years ago, getting a little closer to our present time, that a group of researchers realized that you can not only check the status of, say, Kohanim, we can decide how many common ancestors there were for all humans on Earth today. Why not? So they decided to check a maternal line. 
Now, how would you find genes that are handed down by the mother only? Where would you look? You look in the mitochondria, right? These are black belt medical students. You look in the mitochondria. In the cell, as you know, you have the nucleus which contains about 25,000 genes. And then you have, around the nucleus, tiny microorganelles which are energy-producing factories for the cell. For some unknown reasons, there are 20 to 30 genes in the mitochondria. And these are inherited only maternally. When fertilization takes place, the male mitochondria deleted, and you inherit mitochondria only from your mother. Which means that there is a way of checking a maternal lineage by looking only at the, at the mitochondrial DNA. There's no mix and match of parental gen genomic material. So they decided to take samples from people throughout the world to see how many ancestors does the human population of the world have. And here's what they did. There are two studies that did this. They took a snippet of placenta from babies being born throughout the world. I'm talking about Africa, Papua New Guinea, United States, South America. And they found, listen, listen well to this, hold on to your seat for this. They discovered that all humans on earth today are descended from one woman. They call her mitochondrial Eve. Okay. They say she lived about 120,000 years ago. Now, we would dispute that timeline, but it's way better than the three or four billion they were talking about before, right? Mitochondrial Eve, all humans. What's fascinating is, if you look at these two academic studies, you'll see the second last paragraph is, this proves conclusively that all humans on Earth today descended from one female, and then there's a last paragraph which is amazing. It says, of course we know this is ridiculous, this is ridiculous. I mean, we know we all descended from a bunch of pre-hominid ape-like creatures. We must surmise that there were a number of female progenitors of the human race, but for some unknown reason, all the others died out except for one lucky female, right, whose descendants we all are. As we say in Judaism, right observation, wrong interpretation. But anyway, that is another consequence that genomic research has had. So, that is a background to some of the fascinating applications of genes. Now, much more recently has been discovered an Ashkenazi gene, which means that we have a unique um, uh, haplotype, which is again uh, mitochondrial. We need a maternal line, because your Jewish client has to go through the male line. If you're Jewish, you go to the female line. And so, to date, a unique signature has been found among Ashkenazi Jews. What is this being used for? It is not yet being used to diagnose a person as authentically Jewish, although there are but a din around the world that are now considering using this in association with other evidence. But it has some very interesting applications. Here's one. In Rome, in the last couple of years, they discovered three sites of burials, basically bones, which are thought to be Jewish. In one case, there are about 30 skeletons. In one case, more than 1,000. And... In these places, there are Greek and Hebrew inscriptions. And the chief rabbi of Rome, his name is Rabbi Riccardo Viseni, he's, he's an Italian Jew descended from a population that moved to Italy 2,000 years ago, part of the exile. Rabbi Viseni is not only a rabbi, he's a doctor as well, as the best rabbis are. And um, <laughs> he decided that he wants to take a little bit of DNA from these bones to see if they are in fact Jewish. Because now we have an Ashkenazi gene, we can tell if these bo <coughs> bodies are Jewish. He asked of Asher Weiss in New York, uh, in, in, in Israel, and he told him he was unhappy taking DNA because you'd have to move the bones, and we don't do that. But he allowed them to take teeth. And as we speak, the teeth of those 
skeletons are now being examined to see if in fact they are, they are Jewish. In one site in Rome, they didn't need to take the DNA because they found they're all buried like this. All the non-Jews are buried like this. And in this particular location, they're all, in fact, they're buried like this. One hand, one hand, very, the custom no one seems to know about. But, but the fact that they're the only bodies in that area that are buried in, in Jewish fashion, they figure that they are Jewish. In fact, in Bologna in Italy, there's a Jewish cemetery that's been there for many centuries. And we know it's a Jewish cemetery. But in, the, in 1560, the Jews were exiled from, expelled from Bologna. You know, Jews have been exiled from everywhere. And the whole Jewish community was banished from from Bologna. The rich families took their dead with them. The poor families left the bodies where they were, and for the last 400 years a convent has been built on the site of the, uh, near the cemetery, and the, the Christians, Christian nuns from the convent, have been buried on top of the Jews. You know, there are many cemeteries in Europe where people are buried on top of each other. If you go to Prague, you'll find five or six sometimes. And so for 400 years, non-Jewish bodies have been buried on top of the Jews. And the community now wants to attend uh, 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 to the Jewish cemetery and they need to know where the non-Jewish bodies end and the Jewish bodies begin. So they wanted to take DNA to figure that out and then they noticed that every single non-Jewish body, the, the skeleton, has a ring on the finger with a crucifix. So they know exactly where the non-Jewish bodies end and the Jewish bodies begin. They didn't need to take DNA. But those are some of the applications that um, have been used. One very painful application I'll tell you about is happening again as we speak. You probably know that in the 1950s and 1960s, the Yemenites were brought to Israel. You know they were housed in 10 cities around the country, many, many thousands of them. Inevitably, babies were admitted to hospitals, and many, many Yemenite babies disappeared. You, you, you're probably familiar with the story. The accusation is that the hospitals sold them or gave them away, often to Holocaust surviving families and their children. When the parents came to visit the baby, they were told, your baby died, we couldn't wait for you to bury the child. The families were told where the children are buried, and this has caused a storm of controversy in Israel. Government after government has set up commissions to investigate this, and no closure has ever been appended to this story. About six months ago, the Knesset passed a law mandating opening the graves of those babies to take DNA to see if they are who they're supposed to be. In many cases, the parents are no longer alive, but siblings are alive. And we can tell with precision whether that child is a sibling of the family that it's purported to be. And in fact, the first grave was opened about two months ago. Did you see this in the news? In Petach Tikva. And as we speak, the DNA is being analyzed to see whether it's not so simple because the graves have moved, the ground shifts in, in Eretz Israel, people are not buried in coffins, as you know, buried directly in the ground except for soldiers. And so over time, those small graves, the ground has shifted a little bit. In some cases, more than one child is buried together. So it's going to be challenging to, uh, to, to, to uh, bring full scientific precision to this exercise, but it's being done. And very, very hopefully in the next few weeks, a families will be able to give given closure on this very, very painful story. So those are some of the issues surrounding identification of, of people and bodies and lineages in Halakha. Let's talk about the next area, which is um, just going to refer to, which is premarital screening. You've heard a lot about that today. Very highly recommended. And I'm sure you're familiar with the details. Anonymous testing, Dori Shorin, J-Screen and... Uh, various others. In England we have uh, others. South Africa also offers its own program. And 
that is very important for young couples to be tested uh, preferably before they start dating because then you can avoid uh, getting into a relationship which is already committed and then you have the agonizing question of whether to call it off and this of course works very well in the religious community in the orthodox Jewish community where people meet by design so we can be tested before the relationship gets going it works very well if you're a secular Jew and you meet your prospective marriage partner late on Saturday night in a psychedelic haze in an institution of dubious morals, you know, it may not work as well, but in the Orthodox community it works very well and it's very highly recommended. And as you heard earlier today, Tay-Sachs has been radically reduced, if not eliminated, and of course that is highly recommended. I would say just one comment about this. There has been a trend in recent years in the Orthodox community to move away from an anonymous testing like Dori Shoim to open testing. The fear with testing people was you might stigmatize someone when they are known to be a carrier with no real justification. Therefore, it's better not to know that you're a carrier. Today, there's more openness in many segments of the Orthodox world, and so there's been a tendency to be tested openly. You simply go and have yourself tested, you get a panel of 19, 20, or 200, or 400 genes, do you have them or don't you? And that is highly recommended. In the Jewish world, there's a certain panel that should be done. You can have a Sephardi panel, Ashkenazi panel, I've actually worked with a professor of genetics in London who recommends a panel of 400. He's not talking about Jews, he's talking about, he's not Jewish, he talks about young people in general. A test, a panel of 400 genetic diseases, of course, it does cover the Jewish ones as well. I personally, again, I'm, I'm not the last word on this, I personally discourage people from doing whole genome sequencing. That's before marriage. The reason is when you do whole genome sequencing, you almost always find something. Okay, so you know, recently I had a family in London, they had whole genome sequencing, they came back with the result, 15 genetic variations of unknown significance, right? Variations of unknown significance. Now what do you do with that? No one knows if it causes disease, doesn't, just causes a lot of what we call in medicine an incidentaloma, right? Something you find incidentally, you don't know what to do with. Of course that's personal, that's personal feeling, but... It's very strongly recommended that in our community, when Ashkenazi community, we know particular Ashkenazi, we have a high rate of carriage of certain genetic uh, abnormalities. This is not the time to, to go into the reason for that, but you can very effectively screen for these things and so very, very strongly recommended. Let me speak briefly about one further area in the time that I have, and that is PGD. This is very important for the medical students to know about and for to be known about generally in the community. And that is called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, PGD or PIGD. Let me share with you briefly an insight into this area again, which is groundbreaking and advances are happening all the time here and very important for, for, for you to know about. This is a new technique by which we can diagnose a genetic problem before the pregnancy begins. So let's back up a moment and just understand. When I was a medical student, again, not that long ago, the, the procedure was if a woman was pregnant and you needed to know if there was a fetal abnormality. So then there would be various tests that were done, inclusive invasive tests. You would put a needle into the uterus, amniocentesis, or take a little snippet of the placenta. These are invasive tests. They would give you a precise genetic diagnosis, but there's a risk. About a half a percent of pregnancies are lost due to these invasive testing. With the chorionic sampling, uh, kids were born without fingers and toes because you can band set up in the uterus. It's not an innocuous test. And therefore, Right. And secondly, if an abnormality were found, then you talk about terminating a pregnancy, which could be very problematic halakhically. Even more cruel, one young lady today asked me about X-linked 
diseases. We have also even more cruel situations where women were pregnant and all we were able to diagnose was, is it a boy or a girl? And because of a disease like hemophilia, where the girls will be carriers and the grandsons will have the disease, many Jewish women were terminating their pregnancies just because they were carrying a male. You're only talking about a 50% risk of something that's not life-threatening, really anyway. Very, very major halachic question, psychological trauma and guilt feelings, not at all ideal. Today we have a vastly different way of approaching those, those issues. Uh, you may or may not know that we are on the verge of having routine blood testing. You know about this? In the New England Journal of Medicine a few months ago was published a very interesting research piece showing that we now know that the fetus sheds enough what they call cell-free DNA into the maternal circulation that you can pick it up from a blood test. We can now take a pregnant woman, test her blood, and tell her carrying a blue-eyed boy. Right? So we can test the genetics of the child with no invasive testing at all. This has also been used for cancer screening. We know that a cancerous growth somewhere in the body will, will shed enough diagnostic DNA into the bloodstream that we don't need scans or biopsies. We can simply take a blood test and tell whether there's been a recrudescence of, of disease. So that is some of the new, the new work that is taking place. But um, because we can diagnose pregnancies early on, we are able to do it with non-invasive testing. However, what happens if you're dealing with a couple where they know there's a genetic problem? They've had a Tay-Sachs child, or they've had a child with familial dysautonomia, or one of those diseases. What do we do now? So the new available technique is PGD. And by the way, some couples have decided to get married on the basis of knowing that this is available. And very briefly, without boring you again with all the technicalities, this is what's done. So assume we have a couple, they have a recessive gene that they both share, or it could even be a dominant gene that one of them has. What we do is this, we use IVF, so eggs are collected from the, from the woman, usually not one, you stimulate the ovary, collect as many as you can, maybe seven, eight, ten eggs, whatever it is. Then, using IVF, the husband will fertilize the eggs, and now you're looking at a very early, what we call a blastocyst, early stage embryo, in a test dish in the lab. After four hours, or eight hours, or 12 hours, or 24 hours, you're talking about an early stage embryo, it's only four cells, or eight cells, or 16 cells in size, about four, about eight cell size you can actually see with the naked eye. It doesn't look like a baby, it looks like four cells. And what they do is, they take off one of those cells, examine it genetically. If it turns out to be abnormal, you discard the embryo. There's no halakhic problem with that. The Catholics have a problem with that, but in Jewish law, you know, we have enough halakhic prohibitions, we don't make up new ones, <laughs> and so we have no halakhic problem at all discarding an early blastocyst that is genetically Abnormal. If it's normal, we implant it into the woman's uterus and she carries a guaranteed normal pregnancy. Amazing. And by the way, you should know, just a fascinating observation, when you take a four-cell embryo and you take off one cell, the other three become a baby, not three-quarters of a baby. Nobody knows how this works. Right? Do you know that you're all medical students, you know probably that one of the greatest mysteries in biology today is that when a fetus begins developing, you have a cell fertilized, divides into two identical cells, four identical cells, eight, sixteen, thirty-two identical cells. And you can prove that. If you separate them, they all become a whole child, not one sixteenth of a child. So we know that all those cells are carrying all the genes of the whole body. And suddenly, all those identical cells, some start becoming head, and some start becoming feet. How does that happen? How do cells start talking to each other, and eventually your toenails do toenails, and your eyelashes do eyelashes? And Baruch Hashem, your eyelashes never do toenails, and your toenails don't do eyelashes. You know? 
How does the body know? Every cell in your body has the genes of your whole body. It's not like your toes get toe genes. That's not the way the body works. According to Kabbalah, every minute part of a structure contains the whole. The body is exactly like that. Every cell in the body contains the genes of the whole body. Your toes do have genes for eyes, but Baruch Hashem, they don't do eyes. And no one knows. This is known as the problem of differentiation, and there's not even a theory covering this at the moment. But anyway, be that as it may, you take one cell, you check it, and then you can diagnose whether the child is normal or not, and you use the healthy, you use the healthy embryos. By the way, there's something that is even more amazing than this, and they're doing this at Charat Tzedek. They have a technique... You know that we're talking now about a recessive problem. So husband and wife each have the problem. One in four of the children will be affected. Two in four will be carriers. What you do is you diagnose the embryo. And if it's abnormal, you don't use it. If it's normal, you do. What if it's the woman who has a problem? What if you know the problem is a dominant problem in the egg? Which means 50% of her children will inherit this problem. She has it herself. And 50% of her children will have this disease. Okay? Whomever she marries. So listen to what they do in Sharad Sedek. This is... My kids call way cool. <laughs> you know that in every cell in your body, you have every cell is diploid, right? You have two strands of DNA. In the sex cells, you have only one. The egg, you have only one strand of DNA. The other will be supplied by the husband during fertilization. Now, here's a question for the medical students. What happens to the DNA strand during meiosis that is not used? Again, the egg will remain with one DNA strand. What happens to the DNA strand that's not used? Where does it go? No. Where does it sit? In the second stage of meiosis? You're black belt students, aren't you? Come on. What happens to you? studied embryology, haven't you? Yes, no? What happens to the strand that is not used? New medical students? Where? Yes, beautiful. It sits on top of the egg in what's known as the polar body. That's what you're about to say, right? Yeah. So you have the egg. And inside the egg, you have one DNA strand. The non-used strand sits on top of the egg in the polar body. And as far as we know, it's not used for anything. Listen to what they do in Charit Sedic. They take the egg under the microscope. It's a very big cell. You can see it easily on the microscope. Using a micro-pipette, they pull off the polar body and they check it genetically. If it's abnormal, they use the egg. Isn't that cool? Because a dominant disease means you're little d, big d, right? One normal gene, if you had two abnormal genes, you would survive. So you've got little d, big d. If the polar body has the abnormal gene, you know the cell's cool and you use it. If the polar body is normal, you discard the egg because then you know this is way cool, no? Okay, so that is what you can do with PGD. And this has led to amazing consequences. Here's an example. A few years ago, a young lady came to see me. She said to me, I have a serious dominant genetic disease. Baruch Hashem, I have it mildly. I'll be okay. But it's wrought havoc in my family. People have had ma uh, multiple transplants. And this is a, a major problem in my family. Who's going to marry me, Rabbi? I said, I don't know. Two weeks later, a young man walks in and he says, I have my eye on that young lady. Do you think you could introduce us? Now, fortunately for me, he knew there was a problem in a family because people are ill in a family. I said to this young man a few years ago, I don't know what I would have told you, but now you have an option. If you date this young lady and you decide she's the right one for you and you marry, you will use permanent contraception. When you're ready to have a child, I'll send you to Sharia Tzedek Hospital in Jerusalem. If you're not Israeli, it costs about 50,000 shekel. How much is that? 15, 20,000 dollars maybe? Much less than American. How much? 
12,500 US dollars, nothing compared to American prices. If you're Israeli, it's free. Probably the only country in the world that pays for fertility for its citizens because it's such an important part of our culture. You have all the priority work in your home country. You go to Israel for four days under Hashgacha. And you come home with a guaranteed normal pregnancy. They dated, they got married, they've just had their third normal child. Right? Amazing, amazing story. So, this is happening all the time. I had a couple that came to see me a few years ago. They had one four-year-old son who's fine, and an 18-month-old baby with profound congenital deafness. And it turns out they have a familial syndrome of deafness in the family. We don't want another child who's deaf. No problem. I know the professor at Sharet Sedek. I've been there to see her department, Professor Alterescu, a wonderful, wonderful lady and a fantastic genetics department. I sent the couple there, and they are using PGD. By the way, there are two... Listen carefully to this. There are two American groups now suing for the right to use PGD to have abnormal children. They want the right to use PGD... And the American courts are grappling with the question. I'll tell you. The first are people who are deaf. We want children like us. What's wrong with us? We think we're better than you. We've got other developed, highly developed senses. We want deaf children like us. And the courts are grappling with the question, is it moral and ethical to allow people to use PGD to produce deaf children? The second are achondroplastic dwarfs. You know they call them the little people? They've got normal heads and bodies, very, very short limbs. You see them in circuses. We want children like us. And the courts are debating whether it's right to let people use GD to bring children into the world who are dwarfs. Why would they want children who are small like them? Three reasons. Number one, there's nothing wrong with us. We, 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 we're fine. Number two. Number two is, um, would you like to be three foot six and have to discipline a five foot ten teenager? And number three, our homes are built for little people. We've got door handles and bathrooms. It's very inconvenient for us to have normal people in our homes. And this is a real consideration, and this is testing the uh, legal system at the moment. What happens... There are many other issues. I, I, what time did you have to finish? Five minutes? Um, just very briefly, when they do PGD, so what happens is you have, let's say, seven, eight uh, embryos. You select... Let's say three of them are not healthy. Those are discarded. What do you do with the five remaining ones? You select one for implantation. In Israel, they only use one. In many countries, it's illegal to implant more than two because of the risks of multiple pregnancies. And of course, in, in most places, that's what's being done. In Israel, they use only one. What happens to the remaining embryos? So they are frozen, either discarded, or they're frozen, or donated. When they're donated, you have another whole area of halachic problems, namely... You now have an embryo conceived by Mr. and Mrs. A being carried to term by Mrs. B or Miss B. The question obviously is who's the mother? So now you have an egg from one woman or a whole embryo from a couple being given birth by someone else. And surrogacy raises this question. What is the... Who is the parent? Who's the mother of the child? Is it the gestational mother who gives birth to the child as is normally the case? Or is it the DNA donor mother who is the mother? Most halachic authorities around the world today hold clearly the DNA mother is the real mother, but there's significant doubt. Rabbi Yashi was very clear about this, and so all Bate Din around the world rule that we convert the child if one mother is Jewish and one is not. In other words, we cover both bases. Israeli government, by the way, the law in Israel today is both mothers are registered as the legal mother. The child grows up with two legal mothers. 
Why do they do that? Because under secular Israeli law, like in most countries, it's illegal to marry a sibling. And we're not sure who your siblings are. Are your siblings the, the, the siblings from the mother who gave the DNA? Or are your siblings the one, children of the mother? And therefore, if you grow up with two legal mothers, automatically illegal to marry siblings on both sides, which is great, halakhically. And that's what's done. So, that is one of the issues that is, that is being raised here. One of the fascinating questions that happens all the time is, you have a Jewish couple that cannot carry a pregnancy. They donate their egg or fetus embryo to a non-Jewish woman who's paid to carry the pregnancy. That's usually the way it works. When she gives back the child, if it's a boy, then you have a problem. Because eight days later, the child needs a bris. And the question is, is this a bristless shame bris, which means circumcision, or is it a bristless shame gerus, conversion? And the difference is you make a different bracha. Now, which bracha do you make? And it's embarrassing. Here's the moil, is about to do this bris on this little baby. hundred guests are standing around. As soon as he opens his mouth and he makes the bracha on, on conversion, it's going to be embarrassing, right? So in England, the moil have been told to mumble. Baruch Hashem. Don't say clearly the bracha. That's one solution. But many rabbis hold that you simply make the normal bracha on Brit Milah, which is covering also conversion. That is usually actually what's done. So these are fascinating. And there's no end to these scenarios. There's a Jewish fertility surgeon in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Sheldon Silber is very, very well known. He actually has five sets of identical twin women, one of whom can conceive and one can't. Again, he's got... Imagine you two identical twin girls. One is primary ovarian failure. She's got no eggs in her ovaries. Her sister does. Here's what he's done. In five cases, he's taken a slice of ovary from the fertile twin and transplanted it into the ovary of the non-fertile twin, and all five now have children. Okay. Now the question is, who's the mother? These kids look exactly like their mother and their aunt, Okay, because they... They're identical. So who there is the mother? This wasn't surrogacy of an egg. This was part of the mother's body absorbed into the body of the recipient. So there's endless variations on this theme, of course, that the Poiskim are dealing with. So these are some of the fascinating issues that PGD has raised. Uh, countless examples. A, a few years ago, a lady arrived at Chariot Sedek. She said, I want PGD. I, was, I had a proper genetic problem when I was a little child. I lost all my hair. It was very embarrassing. The kids used to pull my wig off. It was hard to get married. I want PGD to ensure that I don't have a girl with the same problem. The hospital said, we're not doing it. We only use it for life-threatening. life-threatening. They won't even use it for BRCA genes because it's not life-threatening when the child's born. So she went to Rav Neuvert, great rabbi in Jerusalem. He called up the hospital. He said, this is a serious problem. You do the test. They did the test. But every case is judged on an individual basis. The uh, professor there told me that for Jews in Israel, you have to pass a question, a list of questions before they'll use PGD. After all, it's paid for by the government. It's a scarce resource. If you're a Jewish couple wanting PGD, they ask you 100 questions. Arab families are not questioned at all. Arab families coming forward in Israel, they test them with no questioning at all. Ask me privately afterwards why, but that is what they do. So, that is current state of the art of PGD, and of course it's been used uh, with amazing, amazing results. Many marriages are taking place now where a genetic disease has been discovered before the marriage, or even more commonly afterwards, where we can now exclude these problems from going forward, and theoretically we could even uh, uh, eliminate these genes from the community. 
So this has been a very brief introduction to the brave new world of genomics. I refer briefly to one area without discussing it at all, of course, and that is the next step, which is modifying the genome altogether. Already two clinical diseases have been cured. We can now actually use a CRISPR gene editing technique to take a child who's born in the world already with a serious life-threatening disease. We apply gene splicing technology, we modify the genome so that they are now genetically normal. At least two major diseases, one is uh, amaurosis, a, a congenital blindness, the, or uh, manifest later. The other one is the kids who are born with uh, zero immunity, what they call the bubble, bubble boy syndrome, bubble child. These kids die of infection within a year or two, cured using a CRISPR technology, implanting the normal gene into their abnormal genome, and this is the Undoubtedly, um, other w things will be treated that way, and basically there's no real Jewish problem with that from a lucky point of view, but that is the wave of the future. Anyway, thank you very much for this opportunity to study some of these things with you.